Creation is in it for itself. Thorns and thistles appear. Fangs and claws appear. The creation is no longer yielding to its caretakers. It takes on the nature of the new nature of the caretakers, the fallen nature of this caretakers. If nature knows that if it doesn't protect itself, those creatures right there will take it all. The ground will no longer yield itself to you. Thorns, thistles, weeds, sweat of your brow. You're going to have to take it. Take, take, take. In it for me. Looking out for number one. This is now the creature's nature. This is now the God they serve. That little G God. The God that tries to tell us that love can be conditional. The love that, that, that love can be, be a little bit, un, it can be a little bit unconditional and can be a little bit conditional. It's cold in this new place. How do we know? They try to cover themselves. It's cold. I probably think that, that, that literally, it literally is cold. They all of a sudden feel something that they don't anymore. But I think it's in their eyes. It's cold. Where there was love and warmth in Adam's eyes before, now this, there's this cold stare of selfish lust. So Eve tries to cover herself up. Where there was once a twinkle of admiration. In Eve's eyes, there's now this cold stare of contempt and resentment. So Adam covers himself up, both trying to get warm. Creation now changes to the nature of its caretakers. The selfish king and queen begin to rule and the creation begins to protect itself too. They take, they've chosen the God that does not give life. They've chosen the God that does not offer life, that does not give love. They've chosen the path to walk that is all about me. It wasn't me. It was the woman. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. Laying blame. Trying to look good. All about me. So, let me ask you then. When creatures no longer have the God of life to worship because they've turned their back on them, then who do they turn to? What do they have to turn to anymore for the divine in their life? The creation itself. Isn't that true? Wouldn't be bad to worship the creation itself, except now the creation has been recreated by Adam and Eve's new nature. It's now perverted. It's now a... a, a uh, uh, a poor, poor imitation of what God gave. But it's all they have, so that's what they turn to. The Bible describes how each line, godly and ungodly, begins to settle this created world. They settle and they cultivate and they fill and they multiply. And what do their substitute gods look like? It looks like the creation around them, which is why that commandment is there. Don't make for yourself an idol. Any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath it, or on the water or under the earth, in the water or under the earth. Why? Because it's not me, it's what I made. And by the way, it's not quite what I made. It now looks like you, he tells us. Don't what? Don't worship it. Don't look for life in it because there is no life in it.
the selfish creation, the land that they settle, the land they begin to take from others. Nimrod is the very first one to go over borders and take it. And guess what? They begin worshiping Nimrod. Why? Because he lives by the rules of this world. He looks like what a God would look like in the rules of this world. He doesn't care who it belongs to. I can take it because I'm strong enough. So the legend goes out. A mighty warrior on the earth. A new God to worship. Little G. The gods they've chosen seem powerful like the stories their fathers told them. Great sweeping winds. As sin begins to settle into the DNA of this place, the foundations begin to move and to settle. Volcanoes begin to erupt. Those gods look pretty powerful. They kind of sound like the ones our grandfathers used to tell us about. They also seem pretty ticked, so maybe we'd better worship them. Maybe we'd better figure out a way to appease their anger. Imagine what it was like to begin to witness nature beginning to cannibalize itself in front of their very eyes. I read an article once a few years ago about an Arctic tundra buggy polar bear expedition. You ever heard of these? Anybody ever been on one? Good, because I'm about to make fun of them. No, I'm not. I don't want to make fun of them. But the cheapest one I've seen online today is about $6,000. $6,000 to sit in this big, big Humvee on wheels and sit and wait for polar bears to come around so that you can watch them. But one of the first ones that happened, they did. The, 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 all of the, the, the people there, they were pressed up against the window because there was a mother and two twin cubs, two little twin cubs. And they were playing out there, and, and the people thought, wow, $6,000, and there they are. Because they don't guarantee that you're going to see them. It's kind of like whale watching. By the way, only person ever to be skunked, from what I understand, whale watching in Maui. Went three hours, got seasick, not one whale. I'd like the only person this company ever had to give their money back to because they had a sign that said, guaranteed to see whales or your money back. By the way, they didn't give me all my money back. Anyway. (laughs) How long does human nature hold a grudge? But $6,000, and they're seeing what they want to see, and they're taking pictures, and, and it's beautiful, a mother and a cub, and all of a sudden this adult male comes walking over, picks up one of those cubs, and throws it to the ground, and begins kicking it around. Actually, even kicking it or throwing it once to where it hit the window of the buggy. Then after a while of doing that with it, he finally rips it apart with his jaws, and he eats most of it in front of their eyes. You know, and that's one of thousands of species that cannibalize itself. Imagine, imagine the first time our, our, these forebears begin to witness this. Imagine getting a taste of what the new creation is like. What do these little gods look like? What can we do? What can we do to appease them? They're so what? They're so angry. Nature is beautiful and grand and sweeping. Yeah. And I, and I do. I, I hear the strums of the Lion King playing to me. The circle of life. Yeah, it's not the circle of life. It's the circle of death. 
This new God is cruel. He's arbitrary, selfish, and, and completely the opposite of the capital G God. He does not care. Can you imagine as sin begins to settle in into the human DNA? As it begins to take its toll. Can you imagine how it feels to all of a sudden see the infant mortality rates begin to rise? Infant mortality between birth and one year. Historians will tell you that that conservatively at any given time in the ancient world, the mortality rates, even in the most advanced civilizations like Rome, like Greece, were between 50 and 75 percent. Imagine when this began to happen. Imagine the first family, the very first family that had to bury three brand new newborns before they could get one to live past one year old. Moloch's an angry god. It's one of the gods they sacrifice children to. Sacrifice one, keep him from being angry, and maybe two or three of yours can be born and live past one. The land becomes God. If you've got land, it proves you have a powerful God. Look what he's done for us. Everyone else is wandering around aimlessly, but God has given us this land. So here we are. The land becomes their God. Keep this God from being angry and you keep it and you can prosper. Anger him and you lose a crop to a drought. You lose it to blight. A famine comes. Your children die. Appease this angry, selfish God because he does not care. And what about the capital G God as all this is going on? What's amazing is that back then he kind of acts the way that they expect a God to act. He acts in these huge sweeping events. The flood, confusing languages. He, he, he acts the way that they expect a God to act. But he does this in order not, not just to, to, to make them think that he's angry. They already think that all gods are angry anyway. But he does it to buy them time. He does it to keep them from cannibalizing themselves. He does it so the human race won't become extinct before he has an opportunity to save them. The flood and the confusing of the languages and everything. It's to separate them. It's to keep them from eating one another alive. At least to get us to Genesis 12. That's what's amazing. Ten chapters. Ten chapters. And the earth is filled with violence and the evil of man's heart is only evil continually. Ten chapters. Ten generations. The flood buys him just enough time to get to Genesis 12. And Genesis 12 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He gets personal again. He starts to walk with them again. He picks this guy right here. The command, go from your country. Be a Bedouin, a traveler, a place not his home. Get out of where it was settled. Abram won't be tempted to make this land his God because God makes sure he won't from the beginning. 
He promises Abram that he will care for him. Not nature, not the land, not the gods that don't care about him. He promises him that this God with a capital G cares about him and he wants to walk with him and he wants to talk with him. This God cares about him. You won't live off the land. You'll live off my promise. God gives his compassion and his personal care to Abraham and his kids. A willingness to be personally involved. By the way, are Abraham and his kids given this privilege and honor because they're a perfect, obedient, God-worshipping family? He gives all this to him. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And all of you, the families of the earth, shall be blessed. He didn't pick Abram because he already worshipped God. Sometimes we picture that this is a whole land full of pagans and he comes to Abram, the one lone, the one lone standout, the one lone holdout, the one guy that's worshipping God. Joshua says to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and what? Served other gods. Abram wasn't born a patriarch. He was a pagan when he found it, a pagan patriarch. And by the way, that beautiful covenant that he gave him, what's the first thing Abram does with it? breaks it he said those who curse you i will curse first time that there was an opportunity for someone else to curse him was when a king was going to take his wife so he said tell him you're my sister gave up his wife to protect his own skin when right there in the words of the covenant it said those who curse you i will curse first thing abram did with the covenant break it not believe Why not? Why didn't he believe him? They hadn't been together long enough. Abram's a pagan. He worships those little G-gods, the ones that don't care. You have a God show up, say, I'm God, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, you know, I'll do all these things for you. I'll make you a great nation. You're going to treat him the way you treat them little G-gods. Yeah, right. We'll see. We'll see. And sure enough, traveling around, not having the land to protect him, they end up in a place where a cruel king is going to take his wife from him. So what does he do? Protects himself. Lies. First thing he did with the covenant was break it. It's a beautiful, orderly family, too. Great, godly, obedient men, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Judah, Gad. Most of the stories about these guys I can't even say from here because it's Sabbath. You know what I'm talking about, right? One person laughed. They all settle in Egypt a place that's protecting them from uh, some other angry gods because there's a blight. So for some reason, there's food in Egypt. And why is there food in Egypt, by the way? Because God took care of one of these guys. The selfish little brat grew up to be a pretty good dude.
and everything's good. They settle in Egypt, and everything's good. Until there comes along a king that doesn't know Joseph and has never heard of him. All the sons of Abraham are enslaved because this king fears they outnumber Egyptian men and they'll fight with the enemies against him. Over 400 years they're in captivity and they're back to the gods of nature. Ra and Mut and Nut and Num and Ta and Neftis and Nechbet and Sobek. All of these gods. All of these gods that, that look strange. They have alligator heads and frog bodies. And by the way, they're all angry too. Especially Ra. Is there anything, anything more cruel and relentless in Egypt than the sun? And sometimes the Nile feeds him and sometimes the Nile doesn't. And sometimes uh, little kids swim in the Nile and get eaten by crocodiles. So they sacrifice to these gods the same way that everyone else sacrifices to these gods. And here are these people, here are these people growing and prospering in the middle of all this. And being enslaved. Oh, I left one god out. I left one God out. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile. Kill them all. Slaves? Who cares about slaves? If your God cared about you, you'd have your own land. He's never given you your own. Your God does not care about you. He's puny. No gods care about slaves or children or the poor or the widow or the voiceless. They don't care about people who have no money, no land, no power. Welcome to worship, Israel. You want to worship a God? Worship the one that stands in front of you because he can take your very life. And he tried to do it. We all know the story, right? One baby, one baby boy, basket, bulrushes, Pharaoh's daughter, prince of Egypt, right? And he grows up, has to leave because he murdered somebody, a murderer. Abram was a pagan. Moses is a murderer. But he meets that big G God, that capital G God. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down. God doesn't care about sinners. He doesn't hear the sinner's prayers. He doesn't care that we are suffering. I am God. I've heard my people's misery. I've heard their cries. I've seen their misery. And I have come down. And by the way, he did what he said he would do, didn't he? He delivered them by this murderous ex-prince of Egypt, this former pagan worshiper, this former priest of those gods in Egypt, who, by the way, when he first met the capital G God, was scared of him, hid his face.
All the way up to Exodus chapter 33. It's Exodus 33. It's an interesting chapter. Exodus 33 is right after they worship the golden calf. Right after they were given the Ten Commandments. Moses breaks the commandments. Moses goes back up the mountain. The people are all there alone, knowing what they've done. There's a plague. It's all, it's all bad. It's all gone wrong. All this drama is played out, and God sounds like he's had it. At the beginning of chapter 33, he tells them, go ahead and go. He says, Moses, take everybody and go to the land that I promised Abraham. Just go. And then he says this. He says, but I won't be with you. I'll send an angel in front of you, but I won't be with you. Because if I go with you, I'll consume every one of you. He sounds like he's had it, doesn't he? If I go with you, I'll consume every one of you. I've had it. Just go. I'll deliver. But but notice, he's going to deliver his promise. He's going to give him the land. He's going to make good on the promise that he made to Abraham. After they've worshipped the golden calf. This is after they've worshipped the golden calf. But what he says is, I won't be with you. I'm not going with you. You're stiff-necked, and I would consume you all along the way. I, I've had it with you. I can't, it's almost like God saying, I can't trust myself. I may kill every one of you before we get there. Ever been with your kids about five hours into a 12-hour card ride? Not a court in the land would convict you. So they strip off their ornaments because they're upset. God says, strip them off, and I'm going to decide what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to decide. Imagine being on the, on the foot of the mountain during that time. Moses is up there, and he just told you to go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to deliver you the land, but I'm not going to be with you anymore. So Moses goes in, and he talks with him. What's amazing is, is what he says. Moses says, I really appreciate that you're going to send me. I really appreciate that you're going to fulfill the promise. But you know what? I can't go without you. I can't go without you. It's amazing what he said. He says, I can't go without you. He said, he said, bring up this people, but don't let, do not let me know whom you will send me. You've said, I know you by name, and I also found favor in your sight. If I found favor in your sight, show me your ways. Consider this nation your people. God says, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. He said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. He's saying, how will they know that we are your people if you are not with us? God was going to give them the promise. He was going to give them an angel to go and drive out. They could have had everything. But Moses is saying, it's nothing without you. That's why at the beginning, that's why at the very beginning he was hiding his face. Now, after 40 years, he can say this, show me your glory, I pray. God's proven to him who he is. And now Moses doesn't want to go anywhere without him. 
Most of the versions say, show me your glory, I pray. I'm not sure where they got that. I'm sure that there's some sort of Hebrew derivative, but actually the Hebrew word is please and now. So really he's saying, please show me your glory. And then what I think is so cool is that you could also be, show me your glory, please. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to who? Did any Egyptian God ever offer Moses this relationship? Please show me your glory. So we want answers, don't we? We want our picture of God. We want our definition of his character to be wrapped up and put in a box. By the way, he volunteered to do that for Israel. If the only way you'll let me travel with you is to shove me in this tiny little box, I'll do it. The God of the universe living in that tiny little box. We're supposed to want questions, though. Questions keep us searching. Questions keep us coming. We get some answers, and we don't even like the answers we get, right? Right? We plead to God for answers, and we get answers, and we don't like them, so we, we assume that he hasn't spoken. <laughs> we just didn't like the answer. Please, show me your glory. Pastor Walton, I want to give you answers, but ultimately the only way that you'll ever recognize the true character to God is that you and I, separately, have to come to him face to face. See, one of the stories, one of the overarching stories that reveals the character of God from Exodus all the way up to the beginning is that the priesthood doesn't work. God has the one relationship that he wants with this one man or these series of men that came before him all the way up to David when actually he wanted that relationship with who? With everybody. Moses tell them all to come up the mountain. So if Pastor Walt ever, if we ever get tempted to want to be, become priests for you and to be able to just give you answers, which, by the way, we're tempted to do. I know, I know that he was tempted to give all the answers in that story last week, and I'm glad that he couldn't. Because it's the questions that pierce the soul. It's the questions that keep you coming back to God face to face. And if you can't see his character... You might be asking the wrong question. The question I have for you is, why not? I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. Moses doesn't, uh, God, we're not Moses' grandchildren. God wants this relationship face-to-face with him. And by the way, when you do become face-to-face with him, one thing I can promise you, You're not going to get all the answers. But you might end up with some really good questions. One Sabbath afternoon, when I was at PUC, Nellie was at a conference, so it was just me and Andrew. Andrew's three years old now at this this time. We'd been to church, we'd been to Sabbath school, and it was one of those long summer afternoons, so we're waiting for sundown. So we want to go to Taco Bell, along with every other PUC student, 
could be found Saturday night in Taco Bell in Napa. Right? <laughs> drive to Napa is a beautiful drive. I love the drive to Napa. But in this particular case, Andrew was pretty wound up. And he started talking by the time that we got in the van and we drove all the way there. And he did not stop all the way there. And he had every question in the world for me. Why do those lights flash like that? Why do they call this the Silverado Trail? Question after question after question. What was funny is, we, is that we got our food and he wanted to eat right away. I was going to wait until I got home. And he, he ate. He, he, opened up, he opened up his burrito and he looked over at me. I'll never forget it. He goes, I'm going to stop talking now. I know all the answers that I gave him that day did not satisfy him because the next day that he had enough energy, he started asking them again. He loves you. You're his children. Ask him. If I didn't have the answers for you that you wanted today, you know where you got to go. Crawl up in his lap and ask him. Moses went from hiding his face from him to asking to see him face to face. Why? Because he had a living, breathing relationship with him. The same relationship, thanks to Jesus Christ, that's offered to every one of you and me. You talk about the revealing of the character of God. See, everyone else in Israel is refusing it. Why? Because they don't have that relationship. The one guy that has the face-to-face relationship, and he's the one telling them, it's cool, you got to have it. It's awkward at first. I know what you're thinking. I know what you have in your mind. I know what 400 years of slavery and all the cruel, mean gods with the little G. I know what you're thinking. But this God has a capital G in front of his name. David said, I don't spend too much time on things that I cannot fathom. But like a, but like a weaned child, I come to you to calm my soul. Don't make us give you answers. Don't ask us to give you every answer. Come to God and let him give you some really good questions. And when, and when we do, it will pierce our souls. Worship will have taken place, whether we're here or whether you're at your desk on Monday morning. It's not always easy to see the character of God. But thanks to men like Moses, thanks that he had the faithfulness to write it down, we can see it, we can find it. We just have to know who to ask Happy Sabbath, everybody. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, so much for you for revealing yourself to us. And we just ask, Lord, that we would come to you, that we would ask the questions that you would have us ask. Let the question and the answer combine pierce our soul. We know, Lord, that we will never have every question answered. And we thank you because that's the reason of eternity. 
If there's anyone here, Lord, right now that's really, really struggling, looking for an answer, I just ask that you touch them right now. That you touch them through a friend that somebody sees, that somebody knows, that you impress a heart, and you go and you touch them right now. I thank you that this family is listening to you to do that. We ask that we can do it here for each other. We ask we can do it for our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our community in which you've placed us. We thank you, Father, for worship today. Happy Sabbath, Lord. Thank you for touching us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.